So have any of you guys been following the uh, the dub for Yuri on Ice? I haven't even started watching sub Yuri on Ice yet. Oh. <laughs> I'm kind of waiting for it all to be over, and then I'm going to marathon it. It looks like uh, you will be rewarded. <laughs> yeah. It's been pretty great so far. Well, considering uh, my Twitter feed, I basically have been spoiled on a lot of the major plot points already, so uh, I'll probably be... be able to consider the plot <laughs> knowing all the major all the major events People in advance. have been just awful with that. Like, I mean, even yeah. more so than oh, usual terrible. with anime. Um, like well, I... with, yeah. With who I follow, there was no way I wasn't going to be spoiled about the ending credit sequence in the last episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I follow many, many happy fangirls. Anyway, I don't, I haven't been watching the dub, but I was, apparently, uh, JJ's voice has premiered, and for some reason they've given him, like, a Baba Doug McKenzie <laughs> <laughs> kind of impression, uh, rather than anything that sounds even remotely French-Canadian, which, uh, quite accurately reflects the amount of, uh, market research that Funimation does into Canada, which is done. So. <laughs> yeah. Hey everyone, welcome to Zonan Canada. I'm your host, Jesse Betteridge. This is our second holiday special, uh, where we take a look back on some of the most notable developments from the past year, and uh, also talk about, you know, our uh, our favorite TV shows, movies, books, music, or any other notable media that's uh, that's come out that we uh, we feel is worth highlighting. Um, so, like last time, I brought on three regulars uh, who have made many contributions to this show over the past couple of years. Uh, we have Aaron Dearden. Hello! Uh, Ian Whitcomb. Hello. And Randy Forbister. Hello. So like last time, uh, we're going to just run through a few uh, highlights of the last year. And then I've asked everyone to come up with uh, three pieces of media. Uh, it doesn't have to be anime, just uh, anything that uh, they feel is either overlooked or uh, worthy of exceptional attention. So last year, uh, when looking back, I noted that we went all last year without getting access to uh, Sailor Moon streaming. And obviously, one of the biggest things that's developed this past year is that that has finally changed. Um, the yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Hulu gravy train <laughs> finally came to an end. The almost tyrannical hostage holding of uh, a lot of key anime properties that are that were streaming on there exclusively. Uh, the biggest one, of course, was Sailor Moon. Uh, obviously, there's still a lot of stuff missing right now, notably Inuyasha, the final act, and Ranma one half. Uh, but it looks like it's only a matter of time before they start adding that stuff because. Uh, uh, on 2B TV, uh, which is the new format they've chosen, because um, they've been gradually adding things over the past um, past couple of months. Uh, Viz also seems to be one of the only companies that is still putting stuff up on Netflix as well. Um, I just was reading that apparently Attack on Titan uh, is finally being pulled. Uh, I think at the end, at the end of this month. Wow, uh, that's the end of an era there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was obviously the best exposure that show was getting in Canada because it hasn't. It hasn't broadcast here, of course. Mm. Or the U.S., because mm-hmm. the Adult Swim airing was kind of perfunctory compared to all the other Adult Swim airings. Depends how you look sure. at it. I mean, it, mm-hmm. you're, they're, yeah. they're, they're kind of reaching two different audiences. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know, I know the, the popular conception is that streaming is the new broadcast, but, I mean, when you have something on broadcasting on television, it gives it a level, gives the show a level of exposure that it otherwise wouldn't get. 
Yeah, people like to, to say that TV is dead, but really, it, it does still reach a lot, a lot of people. And the internet does as well, obviously, but you really can't discount just how TV has had in North America, especially, and how much of a hole it does still have. So that it, didn't, it didn't get a second airing. Like, it went through one full airing, and then it was cut off around the time Cowboy Bebop left the airwaves. Mm. That's true, yeah. Um, but with the or, way that, yeah, with the way Toonami yeah. functions now, it almost doesn't even need a second airing. Uh, in fact, I kind of question how substantial it is with, to have a second airing now when things are running, um, once a week as opposed to on weekdays, they used to. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's quite a different thing when you have some showcased one being run into the ground five days a week. Uh, but it's, you know, it's important exposure nonetheless. Um, that said, I know we've been obviously focusing a lot of, on TV stuff on the show this past year, and, uh, a lot of that stuff hasn't really gone anywhere. Um, uh, Pick and Pay actually just launched, uh, December 1st. Uh, I know that we've, we've talked about that on the show quite a bit, uh, and, you know, a lot of the media is making it out to be this huge disaster, which I don't really agree with. Um, it might be on a couple providers, but I think if, when you actually break down what Pick and Pay is supposed to be and what it's supposed to offer, uh, it's pretty much delivering what it was supposed to, and if you know what to look for, you can, uh, you, you can get a, put together a cable package at a good price. That's, it's telling, cause like, I don't have TV at the moment. I haven't had TV for a while. But there was a period where I was considering it just because the packages did look enticing and like, oh, maybe I could actually use this. But lack lack of money was really the only reason I didn't. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so if I did have money, I probably would have gotten one. Yeah. I mean, you can put together a decent package for, for $50 a lot of the time. But I mean, $50 a month is still a lot uh, when, uh-huh. when, you, when it comes down to it. What a lot of people are overlooking. Uh, and I, I know Shaw offers this. I'm not sure about other providers. Is that they do give you the option to like assemble your own package. You can pick like any ten channels you want for twenty dollars, and mm-hmm. that is actually quite a good deal. Uh, I find that that's actually very flexible. Um, but again, it's still getting people to spend money. The bigger problem is that this hasn't uh, created the incentive for many networks to improve uh, their <laughs> in quality uh, as I as I hoped it would, uh, especially Adult Swim and Teletoon at Night, which remain completely. Uh, unnotable and useless especially adult swim which has been cut down to basically nothing uh so and i mean even cartoon network during the day is no longer simulcasting premieres uh for stuff like steven universe and adventure time which you know if you ask me that basically makes these services completely pointless i I don't see the point of having this stuff this stuff broadcast or subscribing to the broadcast if you're not getting the content uh when it when it first drops internationally uh well, that's why people pirate in the first place is because they're not getting it immediately. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. In terms of, of anime, there's been nothing on TV apart from the Iron Man anime, which I believe is still running on Family Charged. Uh, well, that what? Was, yeah. <laughs> it's just that they've just been running it, like, on loop, uncut for the past, since, I think, May. Um, their PR people did say that there was going to be similar programming coming. Uh, and I know that um, Miraculous Ladybug did wind up airing on regular Family Channel. But Charge just seems to be, in, again, like other services, in total stasis, and that was just a weird anomaly more than anything. And Cheese Sweet Home did air in French on Radio Canada, but I actually have just discovered that it's been taken off the schedule. As I hope it comes Aww. back, because that was pretty cool. Uh, I, <laughs> I didn't even know that was happening. Oh, yeah, they were running it every, uh, every weekday morning at 8.50. Apparently, they were, <laughs> also, they were also airing two episodes every Sunday. Um, I didn't know what times they were at, so I didn't... I wasn't able to record them or catch them, but I, uh, 
I, I did record a number of episodes of that. I would usually use that, and I often use it as a used to get up earlier in the morning, because <laughs> I normally don't get up that early a lot of the time. But yeah, that was. That I was... gotta watch the cat drink the milk and find like a toy mouse or something. Yeah, I mean, I, I I don't speak French, so but I still watched it anyway. It took it took me several episodes just to catch on to the the fact that you know they're not supposed to have cats in the apartment, which is the central conflict in the whole show. Uh, but I, you know, I still really enjoyed it, and I hope I hope they bring it back. Um, I think I think they ran through mo- at least most of the first season. Um, uh, if you follow me on social media, I have been rattling on a bit about uh, writing to CBC about airing anime late at night, which uh, is very obviously um, not very likely to happen. But I-, I would say at this point, it's no less likely than any other broadcaster airing anime. So why not shoot for the moon, right? Um, because it would have the best exposure on there, even if it was at like one o'clock in the morning, which is pretty much the only place that they'd put something like that. Plus, maybe you could argue Canadian content because so much like B-level anime is dubbed here. Is it though? Yeah, it was. Go back a few years, maybe. Yeah. (laughs) They could run Nana. That'd be that'd be great. Um, Yeah. We we still haven't gotten a confirmation on that Gintama dub either. Uh, All all we really know is Hmm. that fifty at least. Is that like moving to somewhere else now? Like, is it? I hope not. Or no, I mean like I didn't know I not necessarily about the dub, but I heard something about another studio getting the license and you said you weren't sure. Well, that was speculation uh because it's just been in stasis for so long. There's a new season of the show coming out in January and uh, the Funimation and Crunchyroll deal happened after that new Canadian dub was being produced. You know, given the given the precedence especially with that, with that Dragon Ball Kai dub that just got completely put into a vault never to be seen again it seems that i just feel that that could happen again even though a, a fairly large chunk of gintoma has apparently been dubbed in in canada at this point maybe i'm just paranoid i don't know yeah my my instinct is that the canadian dub will probably continue i think Funimation will be extremely busy going forward uh just even before the country roll alliance they had to boost up productivity for the final dubs so any any excuse not not for Funimation to dub it, they'll probably take. Yeah, and we also are seeing um, Bang Zoom doing uh, Mob Psycho 100, which was initially announced as a uh, as a Funimation project as well. Um, and it's also possible that Bang Zoom is just like like lowballing their prices like crazy now that they just have to get whatever uh, whatever jobs they they can get. Um, and also, mm-hmm. if you haven't heard, Bang Zoom in LA is actually doing a separate dub for Dragon Ball Super that's going to be distributed to international markets. Because, of course, there are going to be shenanigans with different dubs of Dragon Ball. <laughs> of course. It's, it's, uh, it wouldn't be Dragon Ball otherwise. I think they're just doing it for nostalgia's sake. For nostalgia's <laughs> sake, if you ask me. Wow. The, the, the fact that Bang Zoom got that project instead of Ocean, uh, that that really says to me that they are probably like doing it for a song. Uh, but yeah, what a weird situation that is. For, for the record, the official dub that is being distributed to, to Canada is going to be the Funimation dub uh, that's being produced in Texas. That's obviously going to be streamed. Whether it's broadcast is uh, is kind of up in the air. Um, it is. They've confirmed the Toonami airing of that. It's going to start in January. What's interesting about the airing of Dragon Ball Super, I'm not sure if you guys have heard, uh, it's going to be running at 8 p.m. and 11.30 p.m. on Saturdays on Adult Swim. Uh, but the premieres will actually be at 8 p.m., uh, which hmm. is uh, different than how they've done that kind of thing before. I suspect the reason for that is because it is going to be marketed sort of as a kid's property 
despite the fact that it's on Adult Swim, uh, because there's a apparently there's a toy line coming out next uh, year. Yeah. Uh, which I think, if I'm not mistaken, this is the first time that Adult Swim has run a show with a children's toy line attached to it. <laughs> and and the show is pretty um, funny and lighthearted in the first place. Yeah. Uh, especially, I, I just caught the latest, uh, the second latest episode, which has a Raleigh from Dr. Slump in it. And that episode, that episode is just a pure gag episode, and it's just balls off the wall funny. Uh, and not really what I would qualify as an adult swim show more than just like a, uh, like a kid's show. And so I'm not, I'm not too surprised that they're putting it at that time too. I, I haven't caught much of super, but it, it really seems kind of toned down compared to like earlier Dragon Ball shows too. If I'm, I, I believe there's not even really any blood in any of the, in the battle sequence to begin with now. Yeah. And that's something that was toned down even in Dragon Ball Z Kai. Uh, and some of the, some of the nudity was, was taken out of that as well. Uh, just because of the modern Japanese sensibilities and the modern Japanese censorship that's kind of happening there, uh, they took a lot of that stuff out too. To, to me, it seems likely that because there's a toy line attached to it, uh, Dragon mm. Ball Super might. I, I could I could see that showing up like in the afternoon slot on Teletoon or something possibly, and it, like it probably wouldn't lead to any other anime showing up on Teletoon either. But like just that show because it has the toy line because. I think that just about every anime that has ever had a toy line in North America has aired in Canada, with I think pretty much the sole exception being G Gundam. But uh, I guess such is the politics of, uh, of stations like YTV and Teletoon. Did Full Metal Alchemist have toys per se? I'm not familiar with a lot of the merchandising there. No, it would have been just like Hot Topic merchandise and stuff for, for Full Metal Alchemist. Yeah, maybe the occasional like collector's figure. Okay. Or like, or like statues, I think, as well. Yeah, Naruto had a toy line, though. Over the past year, there's also been some interesting things going on theatrically with anime. I think Randy had a, had a couple thoughts on that. It did. Uh, anime this year was definitely lower than last year. Last year, there was a ton. Uh, and this year, there was only uh, big time theatrical. I can only think of four that really came out. Uh, Love Live came out in February. Yeah, and that was and, and that was months and that was months later than the than the American airing. And yeah, because so, we and, talked about that last year. Yeah, we, yeah. we did. <laughs> and and just like seeing the crowds for it, where just like there was like almost no crowds because they just completely missed the ball on that one. Yeah, because a lot of the fans had like already either imported or downloaded the Blu-ray at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was also uh, the Psychopath movie that came out too, and that was a really that was a really fun action type movie. Uh. And it was nice to see the the franchise back on track after the uh, atrocious second season that came out. Uh, it was really nice to see that. Uh, and then we didn't get anything from uh, about March until September when we got uh, the Digimon revival finally, and that was that was really good to see because that was the one that has a dub with a new cast, and seeing the audiences for that was really good. Uh, the audience for my screening was really. Uh, enthusiastic, which was really cool to see. Uh, and then the the last one, the, the one that was probably the biggest and the one that got the most people in the screenings was in Godzilla, one that was directed by uh, Hideaki Anno and the director of the Attack on Titan live action movies. Uh, I'm blanking on his name right now. That was uh, Shinji, uh, Shinji Higuchi. Shinji Higuchi. That's why I was thinking. I didn't want to say it without knowing for sure. <laughs> he, also, uh, he also directed I, all the shitty episodes of Nadia. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, fun. <laughs> Um, so that was, uh, of all the movies, that was 
probably the one I enjoyed the most, Shin Godzilla. It was unlike anything I saw while still being incredibly like things I've seen from Anno. They take entire tracks from Evangelion yeah. uh, and, and, and put into Shin Godzilla, and I thought that was uh, quite funny. Yeah, when, uh, I, when I was she, watching it, I kept, like, Decisive Battle, the, 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 yeah. the track kept running through my head, and then it actually played. And I'm just like, whoa, that was amazing. <laughs> when I describe Shin, Shin Godzilla, I like to describe it as a triumph of on-screen text. Everything is identified with uh, Anno's distinctive font on screen. Every bit of technology is described as uh, as intricately as possible. If, if you like Evangelion for, like, Misato has a crazy plan to stop this angel kind of stuff from the early episodes, like, that's basically what Shin Godzilla is. It's It's pretty great. <laughs> It's the most engaging walking around to business rooms and talking about things you could imagine. Yeah, I, I really wasn't anticipating it to be so bureaucratic uh, in its plot. That was really, so good about it. That was amazing about it. I really enjoyed that a lot. Uh, there were a few other scatterings, uh, none of which really hit my, seri- my city. Uh, Boy and the Beast came out in some cities, uh, but it was really more of a muted affair. I should point out that Mongrel Media basically never mentioned it on social media or really in any promotional uh, capacity at all. Um, they did a little... I, I noticed on their... Yeah, it just showed up on the theater schedule one day. Yeah. They, on their Facebook page, they uh, they they did a, like, a little rundown recently of all the films uh, that they've released this past year, and they briefly mentioned Boy and the Beast, and I think that's actually the first time they've acknowledged it. It's kind of bad, but I hope it did well for them, at least. And we do get the positive of... It's on Netflix and it's easily accessible for Canada. I don't think that's the case in the states. I could be wrong about that, but uh, every, like Canada is easy to get access to that, and I, you can watch it whenever you want. And I think that's one of the good things about Mongrel Media getting it is that we have access to it at this point. Yep, they've got good want. good distribution channels, so that's like, that helps I, a lot. Again, I took I took a relatively new anime fan to see Boy and the Beast with me. Uh, who's barely seen anything at this point. But after seeing that, uh, she apparently told me later that she's gone out and since and watched The Girl Who Left Through Time and Summer Wars. So that's definitely <laughs> that's definitely getting new people into the fold. And mm-hmm. what did she think of Boy and the Beast after seeing those movies? <laughs> <laughs> well, she, likes, she still really likes all of them. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Boy and the Beast is probably my least favorite soda movie so far. Uh, I, I did not particularly care for it. I think that the story just dragged a little more than it than it was than it should have. Yeah, things don't quite I, come together, and I, I I don't know what was up with that antagonist kid. Like I I don't I don't understand what his problem was. It just didn't really it didn't click. But uh, mm-hmm. it's it still was a lot of it was a lot of fun still. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I'll admit I think I heard a lot of the negative impressions before I went to see it, so that probably tempered my expectations a bit. So I went in expecting like oh whatever, and I really enjoyed it because it was better than I was expecting it to be. Thinking about what else came out, I remember Kizumonogatari came out in a few cities. Very, very limited run and very, 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 limited. very long after the uh, American release. And the second one has come out in the States, but not here, I believe. I was hoping that would even be like a Love Live case where it would come out more places afterwards, but uh, not so much. I want to get, give a shout out to Tagaladana's Sadness, which I think oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Vancouver, <laughs> maybe? It was Toronto. There was a showing here, but I missed it. The the main release was Toronto and Montreal. They added Vancouver at the very last minute, and then I think it I, I believe it showed up in Edmonton a little later. Yep. I don't know if it played anywhere else. Uh, you can there is a streaming site in Canada where you can watch Belladonna Sadness actually. There is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's on Shutter of all places. That's like a, a horror movie streaming service. Whoa! No way. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, completely. Uh, I, I, I was stunned when I was browsing through it. Yeah, it's like, also, what it, but we don't get films track in Canada. Yeah, we don't get film struck, um, but at least we've got Shutter, and Shutter has yeah. got a few things that are worth looking at, including that. But it was a good movie. I I saw I caught that in theaters. Uh, I was it was really great. I find it weird that they keep billing it as an erotic movie. It seemed more like psychedelic than anything to me. Well, you do know, Jeff, in the context of the um, Tezuka trilogy of the seventies, those were billed as erotic films. True, uh, and I guess when you yeah. cons- when you consider that when you consider that there was very little precedent for this kind of film, uh, I guess the uh, that designation makes a little more sense. Yeah, in general, the seventies seemed to be an era of experimental erotic cinema, so it makes sense that it would be marketed that way. There was there was one montage in the middle of that movie that I was not expecting and was not ready for. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> Be- I haven't seen it yet. Don't tell me what it is. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's useless to try and describe it really. Uh, Belladonna of Sadness is a movie that will surprise you, guaranteed. Mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to maybe it'll be a nice Christmas movie. <laughs> <laughs> and finally for theatrical releases in Canada was Miss Hokusai, which ran in a few film festivals from G Kids and we actually got the rights through our local Manitoba convention icon, which which I do work for. Uh we got the rights to screen that at a small little event in a independent theater in our in our uh artsy district. We we played it and we got a pretty decent crowd. We at least we made our money back. Uh nice. and and that was and that was a nice uh showing for that movie it was nice and pretty uh intimate and personal and uh the movie itself was was pretty fun uh actually i i convinced ian to come up to go see it too so i I met ian for the first time which was awesome oh nice yeah Yeah. um this this wasn't a theatrical venue no so was it icon was it icon volunteers who assembled the uh assembled the um the screen screen? yeah 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 yeah. It, it, it it was our guys uh we didn't anticipate uh, the setup for the screen taking as long as it did, so the showing ended up starting about half an hour late, uh, but everyone was a good sport about it, and uh, it started eventually. I, I caught Miss, uh, Miss Hokusai. They did play it at the Rio in Vancouver. I thought it was it was, it was was okay. Uh, they advertised it as subtitled, but the, the print they got was dubbed, uh, which I guess hmm. took me aback a little bit. Maybe I'm lacking context. I didn't quite understood why... The film focused on that like precise time period that it did for those characters, um, and it seemed more like a, a series of vignettes than anything. Uh, it almost felt like it would have been maybe more interesting as um, a series of five-minute shorts uh, that kind of led to, that would lead to the the climax that it did. Um, but I, you know, I, I I definitely enjoyed it for the most part. It was a, it was a pretty good movie. It's it's really awesome that you guys were able to take that grassroots initiative to to get a screening going uh, over in Winnipeg. Uh, I, I, I really admire that. Yeah, well, G-Kids, I, I've been in contact with her, and, like, their per-screening costs are more than I would like to spend. But when I got the okay <laughs> to actually go through with it, I, I, was, I was really excited to actually do it, so that was nice. I feel similar to you about the movie. I think that it, it was really it was really gorgeous. Uh, but the different segments uh, kind of give it a too disjointed a feel. Uh, I think it could have been uh, a good, like just an anime series, like even like just a short OVA series. Uh, the manga it was based on. I looked it up later, and the manga is is also just uh, a series of short vignettes too. It's not a it's not a pure through line. Uh, I just want to add that like 2017 looks to be a much better year for theatrical films. 
Uh, even in January, we're, we already get two really big ones. We have uh, One Piece is coming out, and we already have uh, dates for Girls in Panzer der Movie, our der Film. <laughs> uh, so, that, so that should be uh, fun to check out, too. I've heard, I've heard nothing but good things about that movie, so I'm curious to check it out. Uh, we you also have uh, Sailor Moon is coming up, uh, hopefully, and then Your Name uh, should be making a big theatrical presence. Uh, with how it's being received in Japan, I can't see it not getting a big push from Funimation. I would hope. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing your name. I, I'm sure that one will show up. Uh, Sailor Moon, I can't help but be skeptical. <laughs> Whether or not we'll get that I'm one in Canada. I'm looking forward to it. But... I haven't actually watched the Sailor Moon R movie before. No, I love the R movie. I do too. And I'm glad they're including the short um, that played when that movie played in 1992 to add to oh, the nice. running time. Yeah. Because it's only it's only sixty minutes, so mm-hmm. well, might as well then adding that, yeah. And I'm also glad that G Kids is adding all those Ghibli shorts to their to their movies too. The Princess Mononoke re-release. Yeah, Princess Mononoke re-release is going to have um on your the on your mark music video, which has never been released in North America before, uh, which makes it especially tragic that that screening is apparently U.S. only and not happening in Canada. Uh, I I think on your mark is act may actually be. Uh, Miyazaki's best film work, um, mm. and I, I I would go. I, I mean, Princess Mononoke is also one of my top films of his, and I I would love to see those. I I, I love to see them both, but I would go to the theater just to see On Your Mark <laughs> on the big screen. I mm. hope uh, I hope it makes its way up here at some point. For for anime overall, I think it is worth noting, like you know, despite all the little criticisms we can throw out, and also you know all the general complaining about 2016, which is uh, completely justified. I think it is probably worth yeah. noting that. 2016 is a year where we have seen more anime be released than any other year uh, prior, and we have been able to access almost all of it in Canada in some form of in some form or another. Um, I think now that Amazon Prime has partially launched in Canada, I think you can probably count on one hand the number of anime shows that have come out over the past year that you cannot access in this country, um, and that's pretty mm-hmm. great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were very fortunate in that respect compared to like say some places in Europe or like in other parts of the world for sure. Yeah, and most of it can be accessed through one site now on on Crunchyroll with uh, most other stuff on Netflix or uh, or Amazon. Mm-hmm. It certainly makes it much easier to convince other fans to watch things legally. Um, so now we'll move on to uh, the next part of the show where we're going to talk about just some media that we have uh, engaged or, or discovered in the past year that uh, we want to highlight. Erin, uh, uh, you've done this before, so would you like to go first? Um, <laughs> I probably should have checked with you before the, doing the show. Does the media have to be from 2016 or can you just have found it in 2016? No, because <laughs> I just, forgot. You can just have found it in 2016. <laughs> I can't. I don't even remember what the rule was last year, so whatever. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Neither could I. I made two lists just in case. One of the things that would have been on both lists, um, and that's probably one of my favorite live-action movies of the year, um, and that would be The Witch. In general, it's not been a strong year for movies, I feel like. Uh, Nothing really has stood out so far, and nothing for the upcoming awards season really looks like it stands out so far. Obviously, there's been some good stuff, because there's good stuff every year, but... It feels like there's been a lot less to get excited about this year compared to previous years. Um, but The Witch was definitely an exception. I I went gaga for this movie. Um, I'm already a horror fan, but I've been able to get a lot of non-horror people to watch this movie just because of how how artfully done it is, how impressively 
tight a narrative it is. Lots of very unforgettable imagery in both a horrifying sense and just sort of a an awe-inspiring sense. Um, plus, we have a, a new horror icon in the form of Black Phillip. <laughs> if anybody's seen the movie, um, you know who that is. If you have not, um, Black Phillip is a black goat who appears in the film and makes quite an impression, to say the least. Um, the premise, if you've never seen the movie before, is in a small town in uh, the early days of, of, of the United States, there's a particularly puritanical family who was cast out of their village for being uh, uh, perceived as heretical because their, their religious views are so extreme. So they have to find a place to live out in the woods, set up their own sort of place to live with farm uh, with a farm and everything and get livestock together and try to make a life for themselves. Um, but there may or may not be a witch living in the woods nearby. Um and I don't think it's a spoiler to say because it happens in the first five minutes, but there is indeed a witch living in the woods who begins to like make their lives hell. And uh, the family sort of proceeds to infight amongst themselves uh, and tear each other apart figuratively and literally and see where that goes. Um, especially there's a, a very strong narrative with the daughter of the family who is obviously going to be targeted as as a suspect of being a witch. Um, so there's a lot of interesting commentary I felt on uh, perceptions of femininity and uh, the place of women traditionally, um, the place of religion in people's lives. The, the film touches on a lot of things, uh, sort of building oneself up as a messiah figure, what to do when you're trapped in a situation with people you should be close to, but are instead turning into threats to your life. <laughs> that sort of thing. Lots, lots to consider. Lots to enjoy, um, and uh, lots of lots of goats goring people. Oh, geez, that was one of my favorite movies of 2016. <laughs> I haven't I haven't had a chance to see this one yet. I know there's been a lot of mi- mixed reactions. Yeah, there's definitely some good critiques that people have made against it, and I can understand where they're coming from. There are uh, a lot of interesting arguments from people who uh, who argue that it is not a feminist movie and that you that it tries to have things both ways by trying to have a female empowerment movie, but also sort of exploiting uh, certain feminine stereotypes and witch stereotypes. Um, but I think it's also interesting to read from a feminist lens, and I think you can do that. And I believe it's on Netflix, too. It is, mm-hmm. yeah. Mongrel Media again. Yeah. <laughs> oh, is it? Yeah. Uh, oh, right, and another thing I enjoy about it is just the, the, the effort put in the period language used in it. Like, when it's... When I say it takes place in the early history of North America, they really went all out with period accuracy for costumes and locations and especially the dialogue, which is a, a, as far as I can tell, as accurate as they could make it, what the language would have actually sounded like at that time. So the accents are a little bit strange compared to what you might expect from a modern movie, uh, but it works to build the atmosphere and sort of really sell you on the premise. And it's, it's really interesting to experience for that reason alone, even. Yeah, Aaron. Um, I heard I read that in another po- heard that in another podcast too. It's the movie's well written enough to get into that details. I haven't seen it yet, but that was one thing that stuck out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what's what's even more impressive is this is this director's like first feature film, and it's infuriating that it's so good. Some people, some people really know what they're doing. Okay, so uh, yeah, uh, what's your next your next title? 
Are we not taking turns? I guess. Oh, uh, <laughs> are we sorry. Just doing everybody's all at once? Or? Sorry, yeah, the, the format was each person would just do all their stuff at once. Or we could take turns. Would people oh, okay. take turns? <laughs> we can do it that way. Sure. Okay, well, well, Ian, let's uh, let's go with you next. Okay, I'm going to keep this on movies. Okay. So I, I agree with Aaron that this seems like a very weak year when you take into account all the um, big mainstream Hollywood films. Uh, and I liked some of them here and there, but my problem with the Hollywood stuff was that every single movie from Ghostbusters, Civil War, to Peace Dragon, which I liked, I come out thinking, I come out thinking, well, well, I didn't really learn anything. They're not trying to impose, they're not trying to, to express anything to the audience. I don't, I, I didn't feel much watching it, and I surely don't think about it when I leave the theater. There is one exception, pretty big, a three mil, a three hundred million dollars, <laughs> a Disney exception. And if you told me a year ago that this movie would would be the movie of the year, I I would think you were crazy. And that's Utopia. Yeah, I wondered uh, yep. if someone was going to bring this up. Yeah, I yeah I was. This movie this movie um, delightful in the sense that it's entertainingly delightful the way say the Lego Movie was, but it's so it's so meticulously thought, thought out in the sense it understands it's a 2016 film. It understands that the audience who would go see a movie like this would have anxieties in their own, would have social anxieties and racial anxieties and would be dealing with things like prejudice and bigotry and fear and terror and all that stuff. And it makes something palatable and, and grounded enough that it never gets preachy, but it does teach us something about who we are. And for any Hollywood film to do that now, I think it's pretty extraordinary. Especially with an animated film, the issues are universal enough and they, that they just, they probably would have been relevant no matter when it came out. And it just happened to be it, uh, a depressingly um, relevant year for this movie to have come out. Yeah, and um, I want to bring two things up. The first thing was that the animated process for Western animated movies is so strange now, especially with Disney. Like th- th- this movie was floundering creatively, but they but they changed who the protagonist was, and they they re they redid the story, and they came up with something really impressive at the kind of the last minute. And I want to bring up a second point, and that's in regards to animation and how how anime how animated movies are compared to live action. Does anyone think that a stream live action movie that would deal with social issues the way this movie did. Does anyone expect that from a superhero movie or a crime movie or a comedy? I'd isn't like it. I don't expect it. Yeah. yeah. Isn't, it, isn't it interesting that it's Disney to make to make something like this? A, a Disney animated film and not any other studio or a, in any other genre for a big budget mainstream film to deal with these issues? Yeah, I don't know. I think the Disney empire is so sprawling at this point that... It feels like a wide range of opinions can come from it, uh, including these kinds of socially progressive views. And even when when it's a highly commercial venture, like, say, Rogue One, which is coming out later this week, uh, there's still enough a difference of opinions and perspectives within the company, I feel like, that they're making a wider effort to, to speak to more people, to include more diverse voices, because you have such a huge... You have such huge diverse diverse cast in the Star Wars franchise now, in Force Awakens and in Rogue One, and you have 
voices like the of Zootopia who don't feel like they can like they have to step around issues like class and race and whatnot in even their animated films. Uh, you get even stuff like uh, stuff like Moana, which has come out this year, which is I think is that like the first mainstream Disney movie that didn't star animals that doesn't have a single white character in it? Uh, Mulan. Mulan, yeah. Oh yeah, Mulan. That's true. Okay, <laughs> but still, the track and, record has not been great. Well, then you have to consider Aladdin. Like, oh yeah, are these race? Are these racially sensitive portrayals, or is there white white culture kind of um, being put into that movie in a kind of uncomfortable way? Yeah, I guess that's kind of why I didn't really think of Aladdin because that's a very heavily like fantasized of the Middle East, whereas Moana seems to have taken a lot of effort to actually get the culture more uh, more true to what it actually is, like by their beliefs and by uh, actual myths and whatnot. Yeah, although Moana, I don't. It's tricky because character development and comedy there's there's still there's still that white culture approach but at least in this case there aren't any obnoxious pop, pop culture references or well for the most part or or you don't clearly get a white actor mm-hmm. from full house voicing the main characters <laughs> so there is that yeah weirdly enough so zootopia did have a bunch of pop culture references, but they were very tastefully done, I felt like. Mostly they were in sort of like the background or like one-off things that you don't really think about. And to be fair, it takes place in a, it takes place in a modern culture. So yeah. There's going to be references to their popular culture in a, in a movie that's about a developed culture. So right. I was, yeah, I was really impressed by, by that movie. Uh, I'm sure I'll see Art House and independent movies coming out on Netflix that are, that are better than this. Because from what I understand, it's been a pretty good year in that regard. But but given how safe and and broadly appealing almost all commercial films are nowadays, it was it was really impressive to see to see something something important put on put put on screen for a movie like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, based on the trailer that came out last year, I never would have expected this to be like one of the best films about terrorism ever made. <laughs> <laughs> Sure, you can criticize things about the movie. This doesn't reflect reflect our political situation. Um, what do the predators eat? Um, is this for against fascism? But I think the attempt what is was the most interesting part of it. And I don't necessarily agree with the critics who say who say, oh, this is not the best movie. It's just the most important animated movie. And I I don't agree with that. I, I think it's a really good. Movie. Yeah, that's the impulse to minimize animation as a legitimate art form at work there, I feel like, especially if it's targeted nominally at families. Absolutely, yeah. Well, Randy, I guess we'll we'll move on to you next. All right. Uh, so uh, as far as film goes, I didn't really have uh, anything that really stuck out to me besides uh, we've talked about already, so I'm going sk- to skip those for now. Um, I'm going to go right into TV, and I'm kind of cheating with this one because I, I discovered it when it first started but I feel like it really hit its stride uh, in 2016 uh, it is a show on the CW and it's called Crazy Ex-Girlfriend so this show is actually a musical comedy uh, it's about a woman who uh, after meeting up with her camp crush boyfriend decides to uh pick up her life and move to his hometown uh to kind of to try to reconnect with him uh and what happens is 
she meets she meets the, a colorful cast of characters as you do uh as she's trying to hatch these plans to get back into his life and she finds out that he has a girlfriend already and and it's just like her schemes what's this show really interesting is that uh it never the main character as as mentally well mentally uh stable necessarily but it does so in such a realistic manner that it's it's almost shocking how how good it is uh i've seen i've seen what's shown in the show uh to many of my friends who who have mental illnesses and are suffering from them uh i see i see common traits and it's not it's not cartoonish it's it's very realistic uh but cartoonish things are everything that happens in the show including the musical numbers which are actually shown to be basically figments in her head of how she is picturing the world and it's actually interesting because at times um she sings in in the real life and she's pitchy she's not she's not a great singer but when in her imaginary life she's a great singer and that's how it all works the music's really fantastic uh in some way on on old musicals there are some uh numbers that are complete homage homages to common broadway hits there's one there's one of the most recent season that was uh, a marilyn monroe uh parody uh and and the, the entire show is also like very strongly uh feminist as well uh for instance in in the in the latest season um a character has an abortion and it's not treated the episode isn't treated as a big life decision and 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 how uh the entire on is she going to do this or not it's about her choice to do it so she can continue on her career path and it's not seen as a as a big uh moral Really. And that hasn't been done uh, in a TV show that I'm really aware of. Every TV show has to deal with that. Uh, it is always really morally focused on on the implications of what that means in the great societal impact. And the fact that it makes it a very personal story and, and like, what is she going to do uh, is really important and really interesting. Uh, the creator, Rachel Bloom, uh, she's also a year older than me. And... When I'm watching the show, I can kind of tell that we probably ran in the same kind of social social circles in high school. Uh, there's references to like the one kid that's super into DDR. Uh, surprisingly, like, there's some anime references, like and and the humor is really uh, really smart. Nothing nothing is really just there for shock value, whatever. Uh, it's all really interesting and really smart and. It's definitely, bar none, my favorite TV show on the air right now. And the fact that it's on the CW, CW, and it was making, it did not do too well in the ratings, but the CW does really good about um, renewing lots of their shows. And Rachel Bloom had won, I believe it was the Golden Globe for Best Actress in a TV musical or, musical or comedy. And so that kind of inspired them to keep it around for at least one more year. Uh, I hope it's really finding its footing. It really deserves it. I think it's on Netflix too, uh, and and it's just a really great show. Yeah, unfortunately, it's not on Netflix Canada, but it is on Netflix US. Oh, okay. And it's the kind of show that I would for a Blu-ray release of, but unfortunately, Warner's has only released it on DVR. Mm-hmm. So oh, not DVR. <laughs> yes. Yes. So hopefully, it'll get on pay and streaming because I really mm-hmm. want to see it. 
Oh, it, it, it's absolutely wonderful. Yeah, I don't, I'd only heard of the, the title, actually, before you started describing it there. That sounds, it sounds like something I'd like to check out now. Mm-hmm. And, and they, they address the, the misogyny of the title uh, in, like, in the first season's opening song, which is, which is interesting, too. Cool. Well, uh, I guess I'll move on to my first uh, item. Uh, it is a movie, so we're going to take a little step back here. Uh, it's called The Lobster. Uh, it's a new film uh, directed by uh, Yorgos Latibos. Uh, he a few years ago, a few years ago he uh, directed a movie called Dogtooth. Um, this new movie of his is nowhere near as unsettling or cringe-inducing as that movie was, but it's still really notable for presenting a kind of a kind of awkwardness uh, and a kind of uncomfortable atmosphere, uh, and that can really leave a similar kind of impact, uh, perhaps, but just in a way that is perhaps a little more accessible. Uh, than his previous movies. For one thing, uh, it's in English, and it seems to be set in a dystopian Ireland. Uh, it doesn't have a lot of graphic sexual content like, like Dogtooth did, so uh, it, it seems that in making this movie, he took a, kind of a step back and tried to make it more palatable to international audiences. Um, but in any case, it, I, I found it, it worked really effectively. The premise uh, of the movie uh, is that this in this world, uh, there is a rule that uh, all single people who are not in a relationship of any kind are given 45 days to find a mate and if they fail to do this uh, they are forced to undergo a procedure uh, in which they are transformed into an animal of their choice um, the main character of the movie chooses a lobster because it has both a long lifespan and decades of sexual virility uh, so I guess he mm-hmm. figures that uh, if he can't eat in love as a human he will surely sub- uh, he will surely succeed as a lobster. Um, so what ha- what happens here is that people are essentially forced to stay in hotels uh, and are under pressure uh, throughout their their stay to find someone to form a relationship. Um, and they are you know their 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 activities are, are highly regulated. Their interactions are highly scrutinized. Um, and the key thing that they have to do in order to uh, establish a an acceptable relationship is that they find someone who has uh, a specific trait that they both have in common, uh, and this trait has to be something that could be easily demonstrated uh, or or uh, or communicated or explained to people. The way that these specific traits is conveyed always very strange, very arbitrary. It is a pretty clear analogy for uh, not only online dating, but the uh, the the you know the ongoing questionable seemingly arbitrary rituals that go behind relationships in general. And I saw, I actually saw this with my girlfriend, whom I met on an online dating site, uh, which didn't make it awkward or anything, but it definitely made that, that theme about modern relationships and the, the types of, of obligations and the types of uh, expectations and the, the difficulty in, in, in connecting in normal social settings uh, really undeniably clear. And there's also a segment later in the film where the main character yeah, escapes from the hotel and he joins a group of outsiders who are supposedly resisting this process and trying to, to to live on the outside and and be supposedly free of these uh of these ridiculous almost kind of fascist rules regulating relationships but the strange thing is that even in this group um it's almost like the opposite situation they're not actually free they're still under an expectation that they will not form an intimate relationship of uh of, of some kind due to their own kind of strange arbitrary rules that they're expecting their followers to follow so regardless of what side of the fence they're on they're still denied genuine intimacy genuine communication the ability to just be open with anyone uh in all of this guy's movies he has a way of making the characters talk in a really scripted way 
all the dialogue that the characters deliver is um, delivered in a really static, in a very statically, uh, like it's being read off a script. Um, almost like they're talking past the other person rather than actually communicating with them, which is going to be very weird and off-putting uh, when you watch it. Uh, but it it really does a, does a great job of conveying that idea of um, just people being completely fundamentally unable to communicate i think uh i i can only speak for when it was playing here in vancouver uh it kept get its run kept getting extended over and over again and i think it's because the mm. the theater i saw it at ran the trailer which is i don't know if you guys have seen this movie or the trailer for this movie but uh the trailer is incredibly enticing uh it almost it, it's almost a little misleading but it definitely highlights uh the film's strengths and will it will draw you in for what will definitely be a really uh, kind of unsettling journey uh, through modern relationships. Uh, I, I found it to be a... It's a film that gives you a lot to digest and think about when, when you step out of it. Um, and I'm still thinking about it now. It's it's a weird movie. Did uh, any of you guys catch this one? Uh, it's on the top of my Netflix queue. I really want to see it, especially since um, I was so disappointed in Colin Farrell's performance in Fantastic That was embarrassingly bad. And I really <laughs> want to get that taste out of my mouth. I, I have never seen him quite like he is in this movie and anything else. Um, he gave a he gave a, a like a a well like I said very static performance, but one that has a lot of intent. Um, yeah. John C. Riley is in it too, uh, doing his hey. more, more or less his usual thing, but it it mm-hmm. it works really well. His his uh, his awkwardness really <laughs> really fits in with the theme of this movie. I feel like I haven't seen him in anything in a little while. Have you, uh, there was a new season of, uh, Steve Brule that came out this year. I have no idea what that is. <laughs> Steve, uh, check it out with Steve Brule. It's his show on, um, on Adult Swim. It's a spin-off, oh, it's a spin-off of Tim and Eric. <laughs> oh, I see. See, I'm not a Tim and Eric person, so that, maybe that's why. Well, if you're a fan of him, you should definitely check out. I guess I'm mainly into him in movies, as yeah. opposed to other things. You, he, I, I think he, he is like, he co-created the character. Um, uh, if, you're okay. a fan, if you're a fan of his stuff, you'll love Check It Out with Brule. It's him at his most <laughs> painfully awkward and almost off-putting, but not really uh, kind of performance. And he's great in The Lobster. And he again, he does he, he does his usual thing. <laughs> yeah, that was what I wasn't, uh, I wasn't sure if I was going to go see. Because like, uh, like you said, the run seemed to keep getting extended here, too. I just kept seeing it on the schedule at the, the local independent yeah. theater here. I guess it is the same trend because I know it played at the Rio here, and they just kept they just I, they kept running that trailer in front of everything. And I, once you see that trailer, you just you 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 really want to see I this do, movie. I, it's I so like enticing. It. <laughs> <laughs> it is on Netflix uh, now, I believe. Oh, good. Yeah. Uh, I caught this on on a plane. Oh, yeah. I, uh, uh, and I the dialogue so intriguing in the way that they like you're right. It, it is very scripted. Uh, it's very um, almost robotic or just like so matter of fact that it, it, it just draws you in uh despite yourself uh in my case uh, and it took some some paths that i wasn't necessarily expecting uh and it, it's really it's really all in the performances i found a lot of in my enjoyment with it and i was just really blown away by what it was it was very interesting there are a couple of good uh, background animal gags too not as many as you might hope for but uh there, there are a couple of good ones but uh, yeah, I highly recommend uh, the lobster. It's also Mongrel Media, so <laughs> not right. sponsored. Yeah, yeah, I wish. All right. If, if Mongrel Media wants to give me money for for promoting all their stuff on my show, I'll take it. 
All right, so we're, we're back to Aaron now. All righty. Uh, well, I think uh, we've kind of gone with all 2016 stuff so far, so I think I'll continue with my my all 2016 list. Um, I guess I'll I'll step back into anime territory for this. Um, considering who I am and what I'm known for, I think this is probably obligatory. <laughs> but I but all the same, it's still one of the things I most enjoyed experiencing this year, and that was Love Live Sunshine. <laughs> Partly because this, I don't really watch anime week to week anymore. I've found that I'm more likely to, to lose myself on a show if I watch it week to week. I'll either forget to watch it one week, and then I'll think, oh, I have to catch up with it again, and then I'll keep putting it off and putting it off until I it, until it's all over, and then I never watch it again out of shame. <laughs> so I prefer now to watch anime either in chunks or when it's all or almost all out. Um, like this year, I watched erased uh well after it had all come out that was a great show as well by the way um same with uh haven't you heard i'm sakamoto um and i'm planning to do that with yuri on ice which twitter is not helping with right now (laughs) twitter is just brutal (laughs) with yuri on ice um but yes so i I haven't gotten to yuri on ice yet but i will once it's done (laughs) but i did watch love live sunshine week to week because i'm basically the love live girl at this point so i kind of had to um, but I was glad to. I was it was interesting watching that show develop week to week, um, considering all that it had to live up to as uh, as a story, as a franchise, as an experience for the fans. Uh, and I think it it mostly lived up, uh, just with a few uh, instances of disappointment. But still, overall, I had a lot of fun with it. I think it did a lot to separate itself from the original Love Live while still calling back to it. Maybe a little bit too much in the early going, but as the series went on, you kind of got the sense that they were going somewhere with it. And by the end, you sort of get the point like, oh, that's what they're going for. They're, uh, they've been making all these references to the original Love Live, um, and mentioning Muse and idolizing Muse, ironically, <laughs> this whole time, uh, up to the point of realization where they finally realize who they are as a group. Uh, and finally separate themselves and decide we're going to go our own way. We don't have to be exactly like Muse anymore, which is this, which is code for fans. Are you okay if we pull back on the Muse merchandise a little bit now? <laughs> um, but it was, it was really, really enjoyable. It was very sweet. Um, I especially thought the protagonist Chica did a lot to um, assuage fears that she would just be Honoka 2.0. <laughs> um, she ended up, being, I feel, a lot more vulnerable than Honoka, a lot more of a an introvert trying to be an extrovert. A lot is done to really explore her anxieties about what she's doing and why she's doing it and how she feels about Muse and about Aqua and about uh, this whole thing that, that they're trying to do um, and the struggles when it doesn't go their way. <laughs> um, definitely one of the show where they they fail in a major way was really interesting to see because you never really got that very much with Muse in either the first or second season of the original series. Um, they may have had their problems along the way, but it was always kind of a steady progression up towards what they were trying to do, maybe with some, some character drama along the way. But um, Aqua straight up failed to launch <laughs> in the middle of the series. Um, and they have to deal with what that means. Like, uh, literally getting zero support for what they're doing and how, what they're going to do about it. Um, and also how that relates to previous attempts by other characters to do what they were doing that also failed. And that creates interesting character drama and many tears. 
I know a lot of people in the fandom were, were very emotional um, about the, the journey of the third year students in the show, especially who um, it turns out had created their own idol group beforehand, but that launch and there was a fallout from that. And of course you get the sort of tearful dealing with all of that. And it's very emotional and I'm, (laughs) technically it's a really, a really handsome series as well. Um, They still have the weird CGI models, but they're a little bit improved compared to the previous series at least. (laughs) Um, But there's still a certain stiffness about them. That's a little odd, especially considering lots of other modern idol shows um, especially the guy idol shows, it seems like, like, um, what's the other one? Tsukiyuta, I think, was the main example that I saw. Um, they seem to have gotten the CGI idol dance thing down, more or less. Like, the models look smooth, the choreography is slick, uh, the expressions are not a problem, um, and everything is, like, just the right amount of flash and bloom and everything you'd expect. But Love Live doesn't seem to have this yet, despite being this flagship idol anime title. Um, so I'm hoping future iterations of the franchise continue to improve on that, but <laughs> at least I'm glad that the models are better than they were in the first series, which is, uh. <laughs> um, but no complaints about the 2d animation. Uh, Love Live has always had really good 2d animation, especially with the facial expressions. Um, again, like the first series, Love Live Sunshine is really, really uh, impressive with the facial expressions from little, quirks of the mouth and the face to the big over-the-top um, expressions you'd expect from an anime. Uh, lots of really smooth motion of animation. Um, maybe not big, ex- big impressive Sakuga moments, um, but definitely a lot of effort put into making smooth and comically, <laughs> comically well-timed moments. Um, and also really just movingly dramatic moments as well. Like the, I was mentioning crying earlier, that comes a lot from a very effective expression of characters pouring their feelings out to each other. The only other thing I can say is there was some issues towards the end where it seemed like they kind of lost focus on what they were trying to do in the last episode. In fact, it kind of felt like of the 13 episode series, it, it felt like the series in fact, I thought episode 12 was the last episode because it felt like such a perfect ending. And then I checked the schedule and was like, oh, episode 13's next week. Okay. And as it, uh, as I should have suspected, it, they didn't really have much to add beyond the closing of that collective character arc that they'd built to in episode 12. So episode 13 is more or less a recap and one final musical number. So that felt a little disappointing. Um was still I was still really happy with the the overall package and I'm I'm really looking forward to a second season. Um not sure when that'll come out but it's pretty much inevitable at this point considering they're they're really starting to ramp up the Aqua merchandise and hype machine. Um the first Aqua concert is coming in I believe late February. I know a uh, contingent of the fan community is um sending messages to people who have the Love Live license around the world so Funimation and a few other companies um, trying to convince them to hold live viewings of the concert like they do in Korea and Australia and a few other places already. Um, I don't think they'll be necessarily successful at that. I don't know if there's enough uh, fan response to get them to work out the rights to that. Um, but who knows? Uh, we did get uh, Aqua to appear at uh, Anime Expo earlier in the year, so who knows? <laughs> they might be 
they might be willing to actually make that happen. So I'm looking forward to seeing if anything comes of that. Yeah, I, I liked Love Life Sunshine quite a bit too. Uh, I did have a lot of concerns that it was going to be too similar to Love Life Classic, I guess you can call it. Um, mm-hmm. And there, there was a few episodes early on where it was it was too reliant on Muse, mm-hmm. and I and I think I think they did get past it eventually. Uh, this was actually interesting because uh, this year was my first trip to Japan. Every store I went to, every time I saw a Taito game station or a Sega store, it was Love Live in the front everywhere. So I heard every <laughs> song that was out. Yeah, it was really, it was really cool. Um, it was neat to be there at the height, at the height of everything that happened. Um, the comedy is is always where I think Love Live really nails it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know that like Love Live season one compared to season two, season two had a lot more sitcommy character focused uh comedy episodes so i'm i'm kind of just looking forward to the next season for sunshine to see what's going to happen with that uh because i i felt that love live classic really hit its stride in the second season and that's when like the characters really got cemented uh so i think that sunshine season two will will have that too but overall it it was um nice to see that they didn't drop the ball on it so that was that's that's a good thing Mm mm-hmm yeah, I'm look. I'm really looking forward to the season two uh, character interactions in particular because um, I think for the first series they kind of went with the two characters Chica and Rico as focus characters so that you weren't too overwhelmed by the the large size of the cast for a while there. Um, but now that everybody's kind of established and you sort of know who everybody is and everybody is in the group finally, um, season two will probably explore different dynamics between different characters in ways that. Um, the first season maybe didn't have the ability to. Mm-hmm, definitely. Ian, uh, okay. we'll go on to your second item. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to be on TV, and I'm thinking about American scripted television now. Um, I think just I'll first start talking, my favorite show this year probably probably was BoJack Horseman. I could go on and on about that fourth episode of the season, the Field Call with the Underwater episode, the one with no dialogue, the Fistode of Water episode. I think I'm going to skip that and focus on another hour, half-hour comedy, a more recent one. And that half-hour comedy is Atlanta. Atlanta is an FX series created by Donald Glover of Community Fame and Childish Gambino Fame. And I haven't caught much of it. I caught three episodes that he directed himself. He's the showrunner of it, and he writes he writes the episodes and he directs occasionally. And I, I want to pay particular attention to episode seven called BAN or BAN, which stands for Black Access Network. Uh, this is a, this is a uh, complete parody episode that doesn't really fit into the show's continuity. It, it's pretty satirical, so I don't even know if it's canon per se, but the basic the basic thing is that it's a um, faux Charlie Rose style roundtable interview for the whole runtime of the episode. Donald Glover's character doesn't appear, and this is something that the show that the show is quite creative in. In that he can appear as the main character, he can appear as a side character, he can appear as a peripheral character, or he can appear not at all. And this episode is one of hilarious to. The format of it is so is so funny. Uh, it's 
the actual inter- the actual interview portion of the episode itself is this hilarious about black and trans transgender intersect intersexuality that is that I even get into because it it's so funny and and it's dealing with volatile issues but I think I think it comes very close to make sure that the comedy stays on point and isn't insulting and the about this this episode though are the are the hilarious hilarious fake commercials after every commercial break <laughs> and I wish I wish this caught on more as a meme but I guess it didn't in our circle but but first off there's these three there's these three fake um fake car commercials where where the message where the message is um the message is um slogan is is like I don't even remember the car's name but the slogan is when you want to say nothing at all as in the car represents nothing it signifies nothing <laughs> it doesn't reflect who you are as a person and the slogan is when you want when you want to say nothing at all or something like that there's a, a hilarious cheap jack um cheap jack uh guru commercial about about a cheap achieving inner happiness that that's so on point but the most amazing thing of all the most amazing thing of all is this animated commercial which is a cross between Coco Puffs and Tricks and the mascot is is this um, fox who who is coded to be African American and who is after the Coco Puffs cereal and as these cereal commercials go you have your three, you have your three kids Again, who are African American in this case, who find who find the cereal as treasure. Fox comes out of of a sarcophagus and he's it's as a mummy. Fox goes after the kids wanting his cereal, and then a white police officer shows up. <laughs> it gets it goes dark. It, abs- it absolutely goes dark. It goes it goes dark in only the way that a white showrunner, writer, director should not do. I, I believe that. I believe if you're going to go this dark. It should be it should be by a person of color. It manages still to be hilarious, and that's that's quite something, I think. Again, I've only seen three episodes of it, but the ones I did catch were the ones that Donald Glover directs himself. And aside from his writing and acting and singing and songwriting, you can tell that he's a real talent. That doesn't seem like this is the year of Donald Glover. Like he's got so much going for him. It's kind of scarily impressive and i i really feel bad that i haven't like ex- i haven't gotten into more of his stuff than i than i did in the past beyond like community i guess but he's just such a huge talent and such a, an honest genius from the sa- from the this scenes of things that i really just kind of want to dive into everything he's ever made now yeah ab- absolutely um i yeah bit of a shame i only caught three from those three episodes you can you can really tell that out of all the Louis style shows that's been around since 2010, his is one of the funniest. Um, I'd also put um, I'd also put HBO's Insecure that in that category as well. That that, yeah, that go for that go for strong comedy humor, mm-hmm. and and it's just unlike anything else on TV. Uh, is it streaming anywhere, or is it just the the FX broadcasts? I believe it's just the FX broadcasts. I mean, FX, FX shows have usually recently gone to Amazon Prime. Oh, ah, okay. 
and show me, but show me stopped picking up shows uh, about a few months beforehand. So okay, so maybe this will be worked out uh, sooner than later. I've been meaning to check yeah. the show out, so uh, I will mm-hmm. do so as soon as I can. Uh, okay, we'll move on to Randy now. So the next thing I want to talk about is JoJo's Bizarre Adventure Part Four: Diamond is Unbreakable. Uh, this I've been following the JoJo's franchise since the start of the anime. Uh, and this season, I had known almost nothing about it beforehand, besides the fact that it was apparently the creator's favorite season that he made. And watching it, it came abundantly apparent, apparent why, uh, liked the, the previous season, Stardust Crusaders, but I did feel that it got, uh, it dragged out a lot as they went on this big epic journey. Uh, part four, it, it's a lot more of a personal story, and it's a lot more, gag and and just eccentric focus uh there are stand users who make food that make you that heal you uh that make you like a better person uh there's there's stand users that uh just change your appearance uh there's no real focus on how can this stand be effective in a battle because it's not the pure focus of the show anymore and that really opens up the the show as a whole to explore different ideas like what does this actually mean and that's the creator uh araki uh go really uh just balls out with with what he is doing and and what kind of powers he can show uh the characters are really where this one shines there's it's just a bunch of kind of losers just investigating what happens in there uh it does eventually get a little darker once they they bring in the main villain just the fact that it's centered on this on this small town, uh, really kind of special for a show that had been so globetrotting and epic before. Uh, making it making it smaller really gives you perspective on like just what the show can do. And the, the openings for the show are just uh, really good. The music's always been a good focus. Uh, in this se- in this season particularly, the music is amazing. Uh, both of the openings for the show are really good. Uh, the third opening, which is the one that's on right now, uh, towards the end of the, the season, they always do something special with it. And what they do special with, with this opening is just fantastic, and it kind of blew me away. Uh, the ending theme is also uh, Savage Gardens, I Want You, which is always really fun to hear. Uh, part four is probably the best part i would say easily the best part uh better than part two which i really liked beforehand uh because i was just kind of completely off the walls crazy but this one makes you care about the characters in a way i didn't think was possible uh and and i really am beginning to see why jojo's is still such a big thing and i'm really happy to see it uh finishing up and it's going to be finishing up in two weeks which is really cool yeah i am i've been i am up to date on part four and i am absolutely loving it it's definitely my I, th- I think it is the strongest part of jojo's that has been animated so far and i wouldn't be surprised if it's like one of the best parts of the of the series overall um i find the pacing is, is yeah i find the pacing is perfect with with stardust crusaders which i did enjoy uh but it definitely was it did feel feel a little dragged out at times because they mm-hmm. felt obligated to give every stand user two episodes especially in the second half um and yeah. even when even and you know like when they got to things like uh darby the Darby the player, which mm. I understand was massively compressed compared to the the comic, but was still still felt excessively dragged out. Um, 
it just, yeah, the pacing just wasn't, went a little off sometimes, but they weren't afraid to, like, cut a little uh, unnecessary dialogue and compress things a little bit just to keep the pacing going very strong. Um, and mm-hmm. like the the three core window that they that they have for it, and I think it's apparently going to end exactly 39 episodes. Um, is absolutely perfect. The pacing is perfect. The powers are getting really crazy. The villain's final power that gets revealed in the last few episodes is kind of convoluted, uh, and I understand <laughs> that that we're we're, we're going to start seeing more of that in in part five. And it, my understanding is that it's actually one of the problems with the next. Uh, with the next chapter of the series, I also heard it takes a bit of a step back and and goes more towards the uh, the Stardust Crusaders. You know, a bunch of guys going on a journey. Except in this case, it's Italian fuckboys doing whatever it, <laughs> <laughs> whatever it is. Um, so it's it's disappointing to hear that part five might be a bit of a step back. Um, but I mean, the animation studio David Productions that's been handling this has enhanced the source material in a lot of ways, arguably. So uh, I look forward to see what seeing how they handle the next part as well. But uh yeah. create like creating all these scenarios for the powers to uh guide absurd stories in a way that just narrowly avoids being contrived all the time. It it just mm-hmm. works it works perfectly well. Uh I'm I'm really impressed with it. Uh even if even if things go south with JoJo's animated for for whatever reason, uh at least I'm glad that we have this yeah. season. And and the visual style is so unique too. Uh I, uh, it, the design of the town is really uh, interesting, and just seeing how David Production has improved leaps and bounds from the first JoJo series to this one. Uh, they like the first JoJo series I found very stiff and and stilted, and this one is is a lot better. And I think that's a lot to do with the pacing too. The pacing is really really good in this season. Uh, there's never really a dull moment. There's never been an episode where I really wasn't into it. And there were lots in Stardust Crusaders that I was just not into. It. I was just getting to it because I wanted to see the end fight and I wanted to see like what was going to happen in the end. Uh, but this one, the journey is so much better than the than the destination, and it's just been a fun ride so far. And I I'm sad to see it go. I, a big part of why Stardust Crusaders is so popular is the end is so insanely memorable. Um, but and I and I wanted to recommend Diamond is Unbreakable to a lot of people. The problem is that. You, you can't really jump into that one without seeing at least Stardust Crusaders. Mm-hmm. You, you need that groundwork. Uh, but yeah, it's, yeah, like I haven't started JoJo's at all, so I'm just kind of like sitting here like, this sounds fun, <laughs> but I don't know. I I, th- I think you could easily jump into part four. Like some things will be a little unclear, but I think like just from context clues, you'll get you'll get a hand, handle, handle on it pretty quickly. And part four is just so good that can't recommend it enough. Yeah, it's worth it for sure. Uh, Stardust Crusaders is still totally worth watching, despite uh, our our criticism. Uh, I'll have to see because I'm really bad for watching longer series at this point. <laughs> so I don't know. If, if you're gonna pick one long running shonen to get into, I think uh, I, I would say JoJo's, especially since it's not like dragged out at all. They're going they're going back to this stuff years later, and they're able to to compress what? it. Uh, it's it's weird with JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. I don't know why, I, I, Randy. I don't know if you know. It, was there ever a reason why it wasn't actually adapted into a TV anime back when the manga was being, or when when uh, the older parts of the series were being serialized in Shonen Jump? It seems like it's one of the probably the biggest, maybe the biggest long-running action show in Shonen Jump that never got mm-hmm. like a long-running TV anime. I always found that kind of strange. Yeah, I did too. Uh, just because I had always been hearing about it since uh, since like 2002 when Shonen Jump first launched, or here like. 
in North America. But I, I think it's, it's better that it's taken so long because just like what happens now and like just how they know how to animate it and they know what makes it work. I think that it's excellent. That's now. Yeah, the hindsight really helps that a lot. All right, so I will move on to my next item. I don't have a lot to say about it. I'll just kind of cover it briefly. Um, I'll I'll contribute the obligatory CanCon. Um, uh, Baroness von Sketch Show, uh, which is a it's a a sketch show. It was produced by CBC. Uh, it's six episodes. It aired over the summer. Um, I feel that it is without a doubt the best comedy that CBC has produced since Kids in the Hall, uh, which I I know is not the highest praise. Um, but <laughs> I. Uh, uh, but I still find that the show overall is is very timely and relevant in the way that you would not normally expect. Um, the episodes typically contain contain about 15 to 20 different sketches. Uh, they each range from about anywhere from 8 seconds to 3 minutes. Uh, so it can be very hit and miss. Um, a lot of the topics that the sketches uh, explore are uh, diverse subjects uh, that will largely appeal to Gen Xers. They talk a lot about parenting, uh, body issues for mostly older people. Um, and it gets into various political issues that are, are definitely skewed a little older than I think we are. It does have, it has an all-female cast, uh, and often a lot of the material is uh, explicitly feminist in a way that I think you don't really see in network shows from any country. Um, and it, it, you know, it doesn't treat it in like this sort of revolutionary or overall disruptive manner. It's just treated very matter-of-factly when it's brought up. There, there's one particular, there's one particular sketch which, uh, really stands out. I think it's from the final episode where there's a, uh, feminist queer group, uh, talking and one of the girls has a partner who's not really an academic, uh, is not really into queer literature or, or feminism and, and anything like that. She's just, um, uh, just doesn't really view, uh, her lifestyle in a politicized way and she keeps using the wrong terminology and is like, uh, having difficulty talking with everyone, um, and it's 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 kind of funny to watch because it kind of it kind of jabs at uh, both sides of that culture, but in a way that's uh, you know sympathetic and informed, uh, which is is really neat. And the way it deals with um, queerness in general is really interesting. I, at least one of the the main uh, uh, creative creatives behind the show is uh, is is gay, and uh, much it, it's an interesting evolution of. Um, kids in the hall in that sense um obviously much different because we're talking about a show that's uh that's from nearly 20 years later uh a lot of the sketches will rather than uh take the topic of queerness and make that uh, a central gag in some way they will uh try and form the joke around non-queer people trying to awkwardly interact with with uh lesbians or bisexual people and you know screwing up or not really knowing what to say or not necessarily completely inappropriate, but really awkward. The focus of the sketches is, is um, you know, it's kind of subtly progressive in a way that will kind of take you, kind of take you off guard. It does not do it in a, um, in a, uh, in a ham-fisted manner. It, it seems very natural. Like it's not at all uh, unusual. F- like it treat, it treats the subject like it's not something that's unusual uh, to see in a network show, even though it, it kind of is. Um, it's also a little more ambitious than its budget allows, uh, but it's still its first season, and I think that means that the show shows a lot of promise. It is getting a, another season in 2017, apparently, which will hopefully have more episodes, and especially if you look at, say, the first season of Kids in the Hall and see how that show grew, I think that's a good indication of what we might see from Baroness Von Sketch Show. Uh, I know that with there's a lot of talk about 
you know, CBC funding and whether or not they should just focus on news or continue to invest in, in scripted content. And I can see why people are so critical of CBC investing in, uh, in, in scripted content. Uh, I think a lot of their stuff is, you know, getting better than it was before. But I think this show in particular is a very good example of why CBC should continue producing scripted content. Um, I know all their stuff is not like this. Um, this particular, this particular show, um, with uh, Baroness Von Sketch Show, I was surprised at the uh, the promotional push it got. It's been completely overshadowed by Kim's Convenience at this point, which I think is also good, but it's you know it's a little more uh, a little more predictable in comparison. Um, but yeah, if they can continue making more stuff like this, I think it it totally justifies uh, them producing scripted content. Yeah, Baroness Von Sketch Show it is uh, streaming on the CBC website. Uh, I don't think there's oh good. I don't think there's any way to watch it outside of Canada, unfortunately. I've, I've been trying to get some foreign friends to watch it, and I haven't been able to really direct them at anything. Uh, I guess a VPN will 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 get around that. But uh, uh, it's a good show. It's even gotten a little international press, not that much, but uh, it's it's great to see it getting attention. Um, so yeah, it's a uh, yeah, it's pretty it's pretty promising. Keep an eye on that. Yeah, no, that's one I haven't looked into at all. But if it's on the CBC website, then that's probably something I can pretty easily <laughs> look yeah. at a few episodes of at least. The rap, the rap is garbage, but uh, and you're and, you don't, and you're probably going to get a lot of a lot of ads beforehand, but uh, it is there, so oh, it's it's available. <laughs> Hopefully, uh, ad block will take care of that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wouldn't call the ads invasive, but when they when they're not taking any consideration for what people's tolerance level for that kind of thing is, I think I can sympathize with using a, an ad blocker yeah. for sure. <laughs> right. Well, Aaron, uh, we'll move on to your third item. Alrighty. Um, I've been waffling about which to pick. Um, I guess probably I'll go with the bigger one. It would have been either this or uh, a pair of YouTube videos, which are, um, so I guess I'll go with the, the bigger one. <laughs> um, and that would be the new Pokemon games, Pokemon Sun and Moon, because I am a longtime Pokemon fan, and obviously any new <laughs> Pokemon iteration is going to be up my interest alley, per se. <laughs> definitely uh justified itself existing which was the main the main thing that i was worrying about after um after not very long in the previous generation of the games i felt like uh we had about a a year and a half of pokemon x and y being the main pokemon games out and those were kind of overshadowed right after that by the release of the remakes pokemon uh the sapphire um and I was never really a fan of the original games those were based on, so I didn't really have a great time during that period. <laughs> I didn't even really finish the games until towards the end of their life cycle. Um, but this new generation coming out is uh, coming out in time with the 20th anniversary of the franchise, more or less. Uh, this whole year has been a really great year for Pokemon. We had the whole Pokemon Go craze earlier in the year, obviously. <laughs> that didn't last for terribly long but it, it lasted longer than i think some people expected it would and got more but bigger in general than most people expected um so that was an interesting phenomenon to watch happen um but in general i'm i'm much more into the the mainline pokemon games than the ancillary stuff so um i i was much more interested in the re- in the release of sun and moon to see if they would justify themselves as a new generation of pokemon considering the the hardware hasn't been upgraded they're still on a nintendo 3ds um, and the models look more or less the same as they did in the previous two 3DS games. Um, but they have done just enough, it feels like, to 
justify themselves existing, as I keep saying. Um, I feel like now seeing them in action, I feel like the, the change between the previous sort of chibi models they were using in the last game to not necessarily real, sure, but um, at least more proportional models, um, it's it's a bigger change than I thought it would be, and I think it really suits the franchise, especially now since you don't get so much of that top-down view that has been in the game since their inception. Uh, now you get sort of a more traditional JRPG view where a lot of it is sort of more at eye level in a third-person perspective. You get a little bit of the, it, a little bit of the top-down perspective in some places. In general, the camera feels a lot more dynamic than it has been in previous installments in the franchise. Um, particularly for the story, which is the really impressive part of the game, I feel like. Um, I know not everybody has been a huge fan of it because they feel like the story is a little um, invasive or hand-holdy, um, especially in the early game, and I'll agree with them about that. Um, but I feel like um, the director, the new director of the Pokemon games, who started, ironically, with um, Omega Ruby and Alpha Sapphire, um, has a much better handle story pacing and especially on uh, visual storytelling than had been present in the series up until this point. And as used it, uh, he's used it really effectively, I feel like, to tell not just the story of you, the generic Pokemon protagonist who's going to take your team from the little town where you start off to the, the big, uh, the big show, showdown at the end with the biggest, baddest trainers you can imagine, um, but you also get a lot of interesting characters this time around, not just in the sense that they're like, oh, this is an interesting character design who shows up in this one town and then they're gone, which kind of happened a lot in the previous, um, in the previous main games, X and Y, I felt like was very kind of underdeveloped in a lot of ways, um, especially in relation of the, uh, of the evil team in that game, um, and a very underwhelming, final champion who felt like she had really nothing to do with the rest of the story as a whole. Uh, this game, everything feels very purposeful and everything leads to something like a good story should. Every character has something that they do and they sort of, they've got their own little thing that they're either doing in the background or they're building a parallel arc, particularly the, the major breakout character of who everybody and their, <laughs> everybody and their mother loves. Um, and for good reason. Uh, she has probably one of the, the strongest characters in any Pokemon game. Where she starts at the beginning of the game to where she ends up. It's very satisfying to watch her story especially unfold and the, the characters that she has relationships with. Um, very vibrant side cast. All of the, the major waypoint characters that you run into who are the equivalent of gym leaders are, uh, are very decently established and you feel like you get to know them more than you do uh, gym leaders in most other Pokemon games, especially compared to X and Y previously. Um, the system in general is just phenomenally different, and I, I'm really grateful for that, especially uh, because the new system that they've put in place of the traditional, like, eight gym leaders and a, and a final boss sort of thing, and <laughs> a final boss area, it's a similar structure mechanically in that you still have mini bosses that you face off against and then bosses along the way and then you have your spoilers um elite four at the end but they've arranged it in such a way where the battles themselves are all double battles and they're programmed with a lot more strategy for the ai than is typical 
the, <clears throat> excuse me, for a lot of the story mode in Pokemon games. Like, there's a few battles that rely more on clever weather effects that, uh, than I've seen before, clever status effects, uh, abilities that certain Pokemon have, uh, typings that are interesting to deal with. Um, in general, it felt like the, the difficulty curve, which was much more carefully planned than it has been before. Um, and it, even with the experience share turned on, it feels like by the time you reach the end of the game, you're not too monstrously overleveled. They just sort of kept pace with everyone along the way. Um, yeah, new Pokemon themselves are interesting. Um, <laughs> I'm really looking forward to playing around with them in metagame for the next couple of years to seeing what works. I'm probably going to be building a, a test team tonight, actually, to play against somebody. Um, so I'm looking forward to seeing what some of the new Pokemon can do in a competitive sense. Um, <laughs> it's interesting what they've what they've changed to previously established Pokemon to sort of nerf a bit of the overpoweredness of some of some of them. So that should create some interesting stuff to deal with as well. And uh, yeah, I think it's just in general exciting times to be a Pokemon fan, and I, I'm really and really enjoying it. Yeah, I I picked up Sun when it came out. Uh, th- this whole uh, summer onwards has been very Pokemon focused for me. Uh, I actually went to the Pikachu Festival in Yokohama when I went to Japan, oh. uh, and that was that was uh, absolutely amazing. Uh, there was a big there's trying to appease King Pikachu and Pokemon dancing around everywhere. <laughs> uh, so, so I was I was already conditioned to get ready to like this. Uh, the story the story focus is so good. I I can't believe that Pokemon actually made me care about the story because it typically never really maybe Black and White did. Yeah, Black and White was the definitely second strongest. Yeah, uh, but like just like there was there was actually like a in the ending. There's a big party scene when, like, all the old characters, all the characters that you've seen come in and, like, and you can identify. Just having this, this really, really strong support cast and really strong through line of a story really helps everything move along. Uh, I never felt like I was, I was floundering or walking without an aim in some ways. And in ways, I can see why that wouldn't be great for some people. Some people like just the open world. Uh, but like having the, having like a strong through line really helps you play the game. Uh, mm. I, I think, I think that the new forms for the old Pokemon, uh, really bring a new light to it too, because these are po- like, it kind of hits the nostalgia crowd because these are Pokemon that you had already had experience with, but now they're a new type and there's new strategies to work with. So I, I haven't used before just because their new designs are cool. I have a I have a nine tails on my team which I never never have used before and I'm mm-hmm. loving it. Uh, everything in this game really just reinvigorated me in a way I wasn't really anticipating. Uh, you can you can press a button and you can see where your step what your stats are and how you can how you can what you need to train to train the right stats. There there's easy passive train when your game is off even uh, which I which I really like. There's there's lots of Lots of ways to get your team up that you don't necessarily need to be playing it every second of the day, which is great for me because this is a super busy time of year for me. Uh, so being able to have my game off and have stuff happen in the background when I'm doing uh, schoolwork or, or career stuff is really nice to have, too. So having that extra streamlining really helps out, too. Uh, and the game itself has been, and I'm 
really enjoying it. Okay, uh, Ian, your final item. My final item. Um, I'm going to go broad and just um, and just mention the name Gory Downey because mm-hmm. when you, when you look at the final Tragedy Hip concert and the Secret Path, that is that's a hell of a legacy for one for one year. What I've also been thinking about is that while I respect a lot of TV and what television's become, I'm finding that. I think it's still kind of overrated in the sense that how many things on TV are really substantial or, or about anything. It's kind of the same as I feel about the movies this year. Now, obviously, TV's, TV's a little bit better than that. You have shows, have show, you have the show, shows like Blackish on ABC or, or I don't know, Black Mirror, for instance, that, that really do, that really do go there and try to be substantial. But I look at I look at the um, sheer endurance of an artist, what he has to put up with, and what he was able to accomplish with his concert and with his secret path. That was really that was really surprising, and, and I closer to home for sure. I mean, there's obvious reasons for that. I've gone into the reason I, I've gone into the reasons why the secret path has been home personal, but but it's just an amazing legacy for one year, and that is what I'm coming away with. At the end of 20th. Yeah, the, the final Tragically Hip concert was, uh, was a really amazing moment. I don't, uh, I can think of few things that have united, uh, people in Canada culturally, uh, as extensively as that did, uh, that one night, uh, back, back in August. It was a really, really amazing experience. Seeing the Twitter reactions from the Americans I follow, um, TV critics themselves really put into context for me. Because most American pop stars these days are international stars. So you have Beyonce, who has someone like Beyonce or someone like just, well, Justin Bieber is our, our Canadian, but, but who basically belong to the world in terms of, in terms of singles and all that stuff. But we, we're a country with a small enough population that we can claim the tragedy hip for ourselves in a way that many Americans in a way that Americans really can't anymore. It, it, it is kind of unfortunate be- that uh, the Tragically Hip likely isn't on Hirohiko Araki's radar because I think that the perfect way to immortalize uh, Gorn Downey would be to name a stand after the Tragically Hip. Uh, so, anyway, Randy, we'll move to your final item. My final item was going to be Pokemon, but since that was taken care of, I can oh, move sorry. on to, well. my, to my backup. <laughs> I, I, oh, I was actually floundering between two, so that actually helped me out. My final item is going to be Yuri on Ice, which is good because it also has one of the few Canadians in an anime. Uh, sure does. <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the, the other one, the, the other like main Canadian that I can think of is actually in another fi- figure skating anime, too. Uh, but he's not a figure skater. Well, remember, Amaro Ray is... Uh, Amaro born... Ray is Canadian. Yeah, he was born in Prince Rupert, British Columbia. Uh, so for Yuri and Ice, uh, I went into it knowing that the director was, was very strong, and I went into it knowing that the show was probably gonna be pretty good. Uh, I wasn't anticipating it to be as good as it is. Um, but the, 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 from the opening, uh, seeing like the figure skaters go and, and the weird, uh, almost like a Eurovision type song, uh, as they're as they're doing their skating in the opening, I, I uh, the show is still ongoing. There's still two episodes, so it always has the potential to drop the ball. 
but I'm pretty sure that it's gonna it's gonna follow through. Uh, there is such a good pacing to this story of this of this uh, professional figure skater who who came in last place to build himself up again of of the of the guy he idolizes. Uh, seeing his path through this, it just works very well. The relationship that uh, blossoms between Yuri and Victor uh, is is very natural. There's they never outright state anything about feelings per se, but you know that they're there. It doesn't it, it doesn't feel feel like it's it's baiting straight women. It feels like it's it's an honest queer relationship, which isn't something I've ever really seen done in anime. Uh, and, and that that is just something that is uh, special, and I, I haven't seen that before. And seeing that is really good. Uh, the the fact that everyone in the series is professional and uh, they're all Olympic level uh, takes a new perspective genre because usually in sports it's someone is a it's a high school team usually working their way to get to the nationals, but everyone here is a Everyone here knows each other. Everyone here has relationships with each other. And the idea of competing against people who you know and have positive relationships with, with largely is uh, something that I haven't really seen done before. Usually there's like a really big antagonist. And even the biggest antagonist in the series, who is ironically the Canadian, uh, even he is not shown to be like, like, a, like, a, like a driving force for anyone. The the struggles are all personal struggles. There are no uh, I need to beat the bad guy to get to the top. Uh, every struggle you see is someone's internal struggle to find a new version of themselves, something that they can show. Uh, it's also very uh, topical in the world of figure skating too, as I've learned uh, because apparently a lot of any Twitter has also figure skating experience, which is something I wouldn't expect. Uh, but just the idea of the the male figure skaters and the uh, aversion to showing uh, femininity or or queerness for fear of being as that because of the stigmas that have been attached to male figure skating and seeing uh, Yuri put that into his routine and and, and working with his feminine side to to show more is is very interesting and very it's a big statement on the state of figure skating, which you wouldn't quite expect. Uh, this whole series has been really good. There's been missteps in the production values, uh, because when you have every figure skating scene hand drawn with a choreographer, that's going to happen. The Blu-rays are going to look great. Uh, and most of the faces that happen as they're doing their routines are going to get, uh, another polish, which uh, which is going to be pretty good. Yeah, the, uh, but the, overall, the animation quality does say quite a bit about episodes four through seven, uh, and it's it's pretty noticeable, especially on the the Crunchyroll streams, as we talked about in a previous episode. Uh, the latest few episodes have looked really great, uh, and I have mm-hmm. I have pretty high expectations for the last two in that regard. Yeah, so everything has been so well done and well executed and well paced. There's never a dull moment. Everything is working together as a whole to to the end of the story. And the way it is all going is just, uh, it's phenomenal. And I what, didn't anticipate, I anticipated liking the show. I didn't anticipate that this was probably going to be my favorite anime of the year. 
Uh, it wasn't something I, I thought would happen, but it, it does. And I am completely blown away. And the fact that it's uh, a hit, uh, I see uh my my friends who usually watch one anime or like watch like the big anime they're all talking about Yuri and Ice this season which is which is great to see uh seeing like professional figure skaters uh everywhere tweeting about the show and watching it <laughs> is it, it is amazing and it's always just so that's actually like hitting a big market with this show and it's showing like and the fact that some people like this show means that there is a lot of truth to it which is which is neat and i i just think that the show is as a whole is uh incredible and deserves to be seen but i'm pretty sure it's being seen already yeah no i i can't wait to start it like i it's kind of like i almost kind of want to start it like right after we're done if i didn't have to do something else like right after this (laughs) (laughs) Um, but i think i probably will wait until it's all out just so i can binge through the whole thing and i'm really looking forward to it even knowing what some of the things that are going to happen are because I I don't know the specifics I don't know the I don't know the characters full deals and I'm I'm looking, um, just as an outsider at the moment <laughs> one of the most amusing things is is seeing like the tweets from figure skaters posting screenshots from the show um, so yeah I'm really looking forward to it yeah for me if we're talking like best anime of the year it's a toss up between Yuri on Ice and Mob Psycho 100. And it's really going to depend on the last couple episodes. I don't expect that Yuri on Ice will, will drop the ball in any way. I think probably surprise us pleasantly at the end. Uh, but for Mob Psycho, like I wasn't completely and utterly sold on it until it, or its final episodes are what completely and utterly sold me on it as like one of the best shows. Of the- so again, we'll we'll see. But yeah, Yuri on Ice is great. Uh, so few shows like it. So for my final uh, item, I want to bring attention to uh, earlier this year. DC Comics uh, got a lot of, I guess, maybe flack for a series of uh, Hanna-Barbera relaunches that they were doing. (laughs) Um, Oh, I know where you're going with this. Yeah, but uh, I gotta say that the Flintstones comic uh, that's written by Mark Russell that they put out is absolutely incredible. Um, A lot of people have, have, a lot of the panels that have been scanned from it have been spreading around social media, uh, especially around the time issue four came out. Actually, it's been running uh, since before summer, but it was when issue four came out, the one dealing with marriage, that people started scanning bits of that, and those started spreading around, and then people started to pay attention to the comic a little more. And I have to say, uh, those, I mean, the, the specific panels that, that go around that, that seem to deal with things like gay marriage and, and Fred Flintstone having a, an existential crisis about his marriage are certainly great, but they do not do the actual comic justice. Uh, I would say that this Flintstones comic might be the finest piece of American satire that is out there right now, and it seems to be getting better by the issue um what i find really really striking about it apart from like the 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 visual style which is a total departure from what you'd expect from from the flintstones despite the fact that it sticks with a ridiculous premise uh is that you would expect a modernized version of the flintstones to shift its humor uh toward uh lampooning modern social norms from uh from this century rather than the 1960s which is when the the original series came out this comic actually, while it does touch on, on modern social issues uh, qu- quite a bit, its central focus actually doubles down on painting a, like an absurdist depiction of the 1950s, 1960s, post-war suburbia setting. Uh, that is essential to what this, this comic is, and because it's going back and looking at the Flintstones not just as a modern setting being applied to uh, th- this ambiguous kind of Stone Age... Uh, uh, culture, 
um, it, it it really criticizes that idea of applying specifically the post-war suburbia to uh, this Stone Age civilization and and the absurdities that lie with that. And at the same time, you know, you, it adds modern social issues which connect our modern social issues with uh, with the with a lot of their their origins that happened in uh, the birth of suburbia after after World War Two. Um, you see a lot of these connections emerge in the way that the stories are are set up. Um, the adult characters are constantly flashing back to how they had grown up as hunter gatherers and have only recently adopted this idea of quote unquote civilization and are like you know their their daily challenges are coming to to terms with the you know weird rules and and values and roles that um aren't consistent with anything they've known up to that point but have just been kind of dumped on them by what almost seems like a an invisible outside force which you know essentially is what the original Flintstones was was just uh, like the stone age civilization that's had a modern uh modern um sensibilities just thrown on them in a totally arbitrary way and and as the issues unfold, we learn that actually a war had taken place, which was in fact a genocide of of tree people who live in an, in the nearby village, and that's the the foundation on which Bedrock was was created. Um, and uh, and overall, it's just the the struggle to not only adapt to modern society but also come to terms with what had happened to create that society. Um, yeah, as I as I mentioned, the comic actually gained a lot of no- notoriety when issue four came out. Um, and I- in a lot of those scans, we see Fred coping with his his own problems with marriage and uh two cavemen known as Adam and Steve uh who are trying to get married uh, despite the fact that they are they're gay or non-breeders as they call them and the fact that those characters are named Adam and Steve is is just t- to me infinitely hilarious um seeing those parts out of context is actually a little misleading because the the story in that issue um actually focused on marriage itself as a new and radical concept which was being uh popularized within society as a replacement to uh, like polygamist structures in hunter-gatherer society which i don't know if is actually accurate or not but you know let's i i'm i'm fine rolling with it for the sake of what the comic's trying to accomplish uh, there's one great line where they they were, were protesters were telling these radical married couples to go back to your sex cave like like nature intended um which I, th- I think is just subverts that issue in a way I never, never would have expected. Um, but it's the next issue, issue five, called Democracy Sucks, which I think is actually, it may be the best piece of U.S. political satire that has come out this year, especially surrounding the, the recent U.S. election. Um, a large part of that is because it is actually one of the few works that predicted a Trump victory in the election, whereas with a lot of uh, satirists and and uh, and different uh, scripted shows that were trying to to approach the issue basically just assumed that that Clinton was going to win um, the elec- the election. The Flintstones comic actually called it, and and I know this because the the public the the issue was finished and published several days before the election took place. Uh, and in right at the end, Claude the Destroyer, who as they say says the things that I, that that uh, that the audience wishes was true. Um, managed to beat out the the incumbent mayor um and part of what makes that issue really effective is that it again it parallels the story of the genocide of the tree people with the bully politics that are going on in um in bedrock and it just really demonstrates how this comic is able to to sort of contrast that um that really weird historical 
amalgamation that the original Flintstones was and laying that against modern issues that are that are going on and like the the satirical and political observations of this comic are just are just insane um and i think a strength that this version plays up is that it just works better as a comic like the type of pacing and comic timing that's inherent within the flintstones just just works better as a comic than it did as an animated series where it just becomes very stale and predictable quickly not not to say that the Flintstones, the original Flintstones, would be substantially better if it were a comic. But this version of the Flintstones know how, knows how to to play on the strengths of that medium in it, and it works really, really well. Chances are you've seen scans of this comic floating around. Mm-hmm. I, I rec, I strongly recommend actually reading the issues. It's a very, it's very, very good. It is worth buying. I I don't normally advocate buying like individual floppy issues of 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 a comic. Uh, I usually wait for the trade paperbacks, but. The Flintstones is really worth it. It's great stuff. That's uh, the one disadvantage of not working in a comic shop anymore. I haven't been yeah. able to read them. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, comic book podcast. And uh, they they were just dumbfounded that the series was as good as it was. Yeah. <laughs> and they just said that it was based their book of the year based on what their top fives are each. And it was on each of their top fives. And it became their book of the year because it was just so interesting uh i haven't read it myself but i am looking so forward to actually finally getting it i think i'm waiting for the trade for this one i'm not too sure uh yeah i just the premise of it sounds so interesting and i cannot wait to read it you know what i wonder if if in a way the whole idea behind the comic was that the original Flintstones tv series was a egregious example of a situation comedy with no satire at all. <laughs> like I know, yeah. I know it's, I know it's from the sixties, but the modern Stone Age family—that's that premise is satirical. Yeah, that that's a great you point. Think it would yeah. be anyway. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's it's amazing. Watch those episodes. Watch those episodes. There is no, there's no satire in those scripts. It, for for people our age who grew up on the Simpsons, they're unwatchable in in that sense. There's good aspects about them, but in that sense, they're kind of unwatchable. Yeah, like even when I was growing up with them, I never really wanted to watch the Flintstones. It was only ever I I watched it when there was literally nothing else on, <laughs> and even then I wasn't happy about it. <laughs> um, so I don't really have any great nostalgia for it, but I still know who all the characters are because it's, <laughs> it's what was on at the time. Um, so I'm really glad to see that uh, someone has taken the the premise which should be satirical as you say and ad- and actually made it so especially in uh in a modern context yeah, absolutely okay before we finish up i know it's i know it's very hard to look forward to 2017 but uh yeah. was there anything you guys were looking forward to uh media wise i was really looking forward to star trek discovery mm. um i was still looking forward to it when brian fuller kind of went went a little bit but now, now the thing is, he's completely gone from it. Yeah. And mm. basically, he has his deputy writers in charge of the writing, and Akiva Goldsman of Batman and Robin fame is handling the <laughs> production. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, for me, uh, I'm hopefully I'm excited for what's going to be happening in years with with anime. Uh, if everything comes out here that they're saying will. Uh, I'm going to have a busy first two months, that's for sure. Hopefully, this trend will continue and we'll keep getting more and more stuff. Uh, I think we're on the way to that happening. I thought so in 2015, but then 16 was pretty sparse. Hopefully, Digimon will come back 
for the other ones. It seemed popular enough. Uh, I know that there's the Sword Art Online movie, which I'm going to see just because it's an anime, not because I'm particularly interested in it. Uh, but hopefully that'll come. Uh, Sailor Moon, I'm really hoping will come because I really want to see that in theaters. I've been, I, that's been a dream of mine since I first watched Sailor Moon. Like, to see that in the theaters would be amazing. Not anime wise, uh, I can't help but be excited for that Spider-Man movie coming out. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think, I think, um, he was the shining moment of Civil War. Uh, they finally got Spider-Man right. And watching the trailer, it seemed like that tone is going to continue. Uh, it does just seem like they took out Miles Morales and put in Peter Parker. Uh, yeah, pretty trailer, much. Pulling <laughs> <laughs> that kid Genki, but yeah, but he might I... as well. Be. It's a little disappointing that that they're doing that, but I think like this is uh, a stepping stone to maybe getting Miles Morales at one point. Um, that that do we that's... know who Donald Glover is playing in that movie yet? I don't think we do, right? No, I don't think so. He was in the trailer. A lot of people are speculating but... that he would be the Prowler or something. Yeah, I'm just confused why in the trailer you can clearly see Peter Parker wearing Pepper Potts' nightshirt from one of the movies. Oh. <laughs> I did not That's pick up on that. <laughs> huh. Yeah. Staying with um, Tony Stark while he's training or something, maybe, or I don't know. Yeah. But like, like, largely, I'm, I'm always interested in the Marvel movies, but I'm never that excited. And and this one has me a little excited, so I'm I'm very intrigued what's going to happen with this one. So I'm looking pretty forward to it. Yeah, especially compared to like the other Marvel movies that are going to come out, like Thor Ragnarok. Okay. Um, yeah. I think I think that one sounds pretty Guardians promising. Galaxy actually, Volume Two. Um, but <laughs> it's going to be fun. I'm not really expecting like a hugely. Oh my god, I'm super looking forward to this kind of. Two Sorry, movies. Go ahead. I'm, two movies I'm kind of looking forward to. One is Wonder Woman just because of the female director. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other is, surprisingly enough, I can't, kind of can't believe it, but live action Beauty and the Beast. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to feel about that one. <laughs> I just think it's fascinating that they're remaking, an, they're remaking an adaptation with the music intact. And so it will be beholden to that aesthetic, which is really mm-hmm. intriguing. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. When I first saw, saw like the, uh, the teaser trailer and it used the exact same music from the original trailers, I, I didn't know what to think. And I'm, again, I'm, I'm intrigued by it. I'm not necessarily looking forward to it, but I, I can't help but, but be curious. Like, I really like Beauty and the Beast. It's probably my top five Disney movies. Uh, wondering what they'll do with it. Definitely. Hmm. Um, I don't know why I'm still hopeful about this. Um, but I honestly feel curious about the Ghost in the Shell movie. <laughs> like as many problems as I have with the with obviously the whole casting issue with that one, I I really want to see a, an anime based live action Hollywood movie work in some way, um, and not just indirectly like we had with Chronicle or um, what is what is the other one I'm thinking of? Um, <laughs> there have been a few other ones for sure that have not been. Like that have been inspired Pacific Rim. That was the other one, <laughs> well, where they've been inspired by anime, but they're not anime adaptations. <laughs> I think Speed Racer was good. Oh, Speed Racer, yeah, Speed yeah. Racer is like the only really one that's captured the spirit of the original show and been a good movie yeah. in its own right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am, I am really curious 
used in the shell because it seems like they they've captured a lot of aesthetic elements from the from the Oshi movie. Maybe not yeah. so much the pacing or tone of it, but it it looks like the sort of thing that I would be interested to see unfold on a big screen uh, with lots of high resolution detail available, especially all the the tech stuff and the wires and colors and whatnot. Um, and <laughs> uh, I'm really interested to see especially how the supporting cast works out uh, because uh, apart from the, the casting of Scarlett Johansson, the supporting cast at least has seems to have a lot of diversity in it. Uh, I really am. I'm looking forward to, I think it's, what does it be? Takeshi who is playing Aramaki. <laughs> so I'm, looking, I'm hoping that he gets a, a substantial role in that sense. Um, and yeah, and just in general, I want to see sort of how they tackle the story of that first movie and how they adapt it for an American audience. Point seventeen. If you look at the release calendar, it's it's pretty silly. The amount it's just amazing the amount of remakes, reboots, sequels all mm. through the entire year. But on the other hand, you have these extreme extreme curiosities like the Lego Batman movie and yeah. um, Blade Blade Runner twenty whenever that. Mm. Okay, I'm not quite jiving with the idea of making these movies, but I am. My intrinsic curiosity is peaked. Let's say that. Mm-hmm. And that, that's how I feel with uh, with Power Rangers too. So yeah, I, I am uh, so curious about what that'll be. Yeah, like yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I expect that movie to be good, but I am interested in it. Yeah. I, I think the thing that they're using Rita Repulsa kind of shows they're they're trying to take. They're trying to uh, return to the what makes it so what makes it so silly and memorable in the first place. Mm-hmm. I hope so. Like a lot of people were complaining at the trailer, like, "Oh, it's it's a dark and gritty reboot. Oh no, it's gonna suck." But it, I just the way like some of the dialogue is handled and the fact they're not really afraid to use those sort of like neon colors in the costumes sort of gives me a hint that maybe they're not gonna go entirely that route. And I'm. Yeah. I'm Curious to see exactly what the tone is from the movie itself and not just the trailers. Mm-hmm. It didn't strike me as being that dark and gritty. I think mm-hmm. it's just a little more grimy is, is the word yeah. I'm looking for. I'm so curious about it. Yeah, keep I can't in help. mind that um, for Power Rangers Season 1, they actually took away all the goofier Zero Ranger footage and they really, they really kind of propped up all the, um, all the weird and and gothic and grimy toy footage that they have. Mm-hmm. So Power Rangers have always been have always gone kind of dark and serious and self serious at various times through its through its run. Even something like RPM. Yeah, RPM yeah. is 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 my favorite season of Power Rangers probably. Yeah, RPM is yeah. interesting in that the that the Western footage they shot is probably more interesting than the uh the, the Sentai footage that it's adapting. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> I was gonna say, as someone who would much rather just go back and watch Zoo Ranger to deepen my childhood appreciation of Power Rangers, rather than just embrace something new to be nostalgic about about that, I, I'm kind of ambivalent toward it. But I am, I'm, I, I have to admit, I'm very curious about Brian Cranston playing Zordon. That, yeah. <laughs> one, Jesse, one thing to keep in mind is that a lot of the Zoo Ranger players that was cut. Actually, just as silly as the Saban-produced live-action footage. So the serious, the serious Zoo Ranger footage is in Power Rangers, but the silly stuff of that show is equivalent to the silly stuff in Power Rangers. Oh, I, I, I'm not trying to suggest that Zoo Ranger is more yeah. serious or darker than 
Mighty Morphin Power Rangers was. It's just, quite equivalent. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm just saying I, I, I just appreciate seeing like the original context better. Yeah. Yeah. As far as what I'm looking forward to in 2017, I think the, the big thing is probably the, the new Twin Peaks series. I just actually finished rewatching, uh, the, uh, the series this week. Uh, and yeah, it, it is one of the few shows where I feel that a continuation is absolutely justified, especially with the way things just completely nosedived in the second season only to recover at an unprecedented high in its final episode and then to just stop. Um, and especially with David Lynch apparently directing every single episode in the new series, um, which is going to be more than nine episodes. And I think that may act- that may actually be an unprecedented uh, effort for one director doing a television series. Um, I think it's going to be something to really look forward to. I'm uh, I'm excited about that. I'm just looking over a, a list of like movies that are coming out in 2017 just to remind myself. Um, and I'm seeing a couple things I just want to like run down real quickly without really going too much into them just to mention them. Um, first is, uh, Baby Driver, which is, uh, Edgar Wright's next film. Uh, it's been a long time since he's put a film out, <laughs> since I guess the last one was actually Scott Pilgrim. Um, next one would have been Ant-Man, but that obviously fell through, so. There, there was, been, uh, what, the, wor- set- the, the World's End was Oh after. yeah, The World's End, The World's yeah. End yeah. was in between there too. So it's been about four years since his last movie, so I'm really looking forward to seeing work. Um, there's also going to be, but there's also going to be, um, a horror movie that I'm interested in called Get Out, which is yep. directed by... Jordan Peele of Key and Peele, and apparently the early reviews on that are really good. It's been delayed till February, which is infuriating. Um, I'm curious about, there's a movie called A Cure for Wellness coming out, which is a, a Gore Verbinski movie, uh, Caribbean director, Rango director. Uh, I like him as a director, so I'm curious to see what he's going to come up with as like just an independent film. Um, and I think the, uh, the only other thing I'm looking forward to really is, I guess, well, other than the big stuff like Star Wars and Justice League and stuff like that, I guess I'm curious about the, uh, I think it's that the Alien 5 coming out that year, or have they pushed that again? Because I, I am still curious about what they're going to do with that. I thought the sequel to Prometheus was coming out, and the Neil Blomkamp uh, Alien has kind of been put on hiatus. I see 2017 lists something called Alien Covenant. Uh, but in general, I'm just, I'm an Alien fan, so I'm curious to see what the Alien franchise is going to do <laughs> after Prometheus. Yeah. That was a pretty movie. Yeah. I'm also hoping that the final Evangelion movie will finally get announced next year. <laughs> I'll, I'll be happy with an announcement. I'll be happy with an announcement. I'll take it. Yeah. If they can, if they can crank that out before, like, the world economy collapses or whatever, that'd be... That'd be great. I'd be happy. <laughs> we'll get that about the same time we get Kingdom Hearts 3. Thanks for tuning in to Zun and Canada. The theme song is by Ultraclystron, which you can purchase as part of his album Packet Flood at ultraclystron.com. You can reach me through Twitter at Zonan Canada or email zonancanada at gmail.com. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes or your podcast app of choice. If you can leave a rating or review, that would be really great as well. As always, please recommend the show to anyone you think might be interested. Until next time, Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. See you again.